Have you ever longed to don the armor of a samurai and charge headlong into glorious battle? Well, I can't help you with that. However, I can offer you a themed t-shirt that will probably serve as a conversation starter with every third person or so. Check out the merch store at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com for exclusive shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, phone cases, and full-length battle-ready katanas. Just kidding about that last one. Again, I can't help you there. Visit ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com today. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 5, Episode 4, The First Shogun. The title of Shogun was not unique to the Heian period, as you'll know if you've listened to the previous seasons. Shogun itself means army general, and has been bestowed liberally by emperors upon court ministers and great military commanders since at least the Asuka period. The Heian period did see the very first usage of the title Seitai Shogun, however, and that title will eventually become quite important. Our story begins with a member of the Otomo clan, who was born in either the late 720s or early 730s, depending on which sources you trust. His father, Otomo Koshibi, had married one of the lower-ranking daughters of the powerful Fujiwara Fuhito, but his fortunes fell continually throughout the Nara period. Things looked promising enough at first as he was appointed as the head of the outer palace guards. Soon after this appointment, however, he was demoted. His kinsman and fellow clan member Otomo no Komaro took part in Tachibana Naramaro's attempted rebellion against Fujiwara Nakamaro, which we discussed in Season 4, Episode 9, Tachibana Troubles. Many members of the Otomo clan were punished for their kinsmen's actions, including Otomo Koshibi, who was appointed as governor of Tosa province, which lies on the southern end of Shikoku Island. This was essentially political exile. The records from this time are spotty, but his father's misfortunes would certainly explain why the first record of him appearing before the imperial court was in 779, during the reign of Emperor Konin. Konin Tenno, as you may recall, was mostly concerned with restoring the government after the repeated purges of Empress Shotoku and Dokyo, as well as the purges which the Kuge undertook to extract the Buddhist establishment from their court-appointed offices afterward. Otomo Otomaro was awarded the fifth rank, junior grade, in 779, and he must have proven himself trustworthy and loyal, because in 780 he was appointed as assistant captain of the Outer Palace Guards. He was later promoted into the Bureau of the Empress's Affairs in 781, as well as an officer's post in the Left Palace Guards. The Otomo clan had a long and storied military pedigree, and this may have factored into the decision to send Otomaro on an expedition to Hitachi province in 782. 
Situated just south of Mutsu province, Hitachi was the furthest east province in the Kanto region. The locals there had been in frequent disputes with the Amishi peoples, who still operated de facto independently in Tohoku, a situation which the newly enthroned Emperor Kamu found unacceptable. We've covered some of the more disastrous incidents in these early attempts at subjugating the so-called barbarians of the Northeast in Season 4, Episode 14, Tohoku Troubles, but it is enough here to note that a superior knowledge of local landscape and long-standing alliances between Amishi tribes meant that the Yamato army was outmatched, outnumbered, and entirely out of its depth. While Emperor Kamu's decision to abolish the national conscription in favor of regional defenses is often seen as a short-sighted solution which sowed the seeds of the imperial court's eventual subordination by the warrior class, it's difficult in the moment to see it as anything other than a pragmatic decision which strengthened the national defense. Men of military age were dodging the draft, and the armies which were sent to bring glory to the emperor as a great conqueror divided their time between hiding behind fortifications and routing at the first sign of an Amishi raiding party. Under the new system, provincial governors would recruit their own armies, and a representative from the court would command them. Under the old system, the general commanding the armies in the east was called the Seito Shogun, or Commander-in-Chief of the East. In the case of Otomaro, he was granted the title Sei Taishogun, or Great Commander Who Subdues the Eastern Barbarians. The official account of the expedition in 794 is that Otomo Otomaro and his trusted vice-shogun Sakanoue Tamuramaro waged a relentless war against the Amishi, who trembled at their approach and fought against them in vain. The great armies of the eastern barbarians were crushed like grass beneath Otomaro's feet, and at last Tohoku was conquered, and all of Honshu now bowed before the emperor's feet. As I hope you can infer from my tone, this account is no longer considered an accurate accounting of the events in Tohoku in the early Heian period. It's easy to see why this is the story which Emperor Kamu preferred, and why future imperial courts would promote the mythic conquest of Tohoku. It flattered their egos, and even made them feel as though they were truly the peer of the Chinese dynasties who were constantly fighting with the barbarians on their periphery. The truth of the matter is, of course, much more complicated. It is a great historical tragedy that we know so little about the Amishi people, but we do know enough to set the record straight regarding their so-called subjugation by the Yamato court. In 794, a group known as the Shiwa Amishi agreed to ally with the imperial court and assist the shogun in his struggle against their rival tribes. The Shiwa leaders were granted imperial rank and occasionally promoted as they fought their fellow indigenous peoples, and the Yamato army's fortune in battle rapidly changed. 794 was also the year that Otomo Otomaro died. Sakanoue Tamuramaro was promoted to Sei Tai Shogun soon afterward, 
and he continued the work of subduing the Amishi. He sent the occasional after-action report to the capital, informing them of his victories and the number of heads claimed by his warriors. We cannot be certain, but I think it's very likely that the Shiwa Amishi served alongside Tamura Maro as auxiliary horse archers, and that his own cavalry gradually learned the skill of horse archery for themselves as the conquest dragged on. There's an old saying here in America, if you can't beat them, join them. I think Sakanoue Tamura Maro's credo would have been very near to this. If you can't beat them, learn to use their tactics. In addition to adopting their enemy's methods of combat, the warriors of the Yamato army also seemed to have adopted a weapon which was peculiar to the Amishi and not previously seen among the imperial army. After centuries of using slender Chinese-style double-edged straight blades called Jian swords, Yamato soldiers campaigning in the east began using shorter single-edged swords which had a slight curve. This was the blade favored by the Amishi, and it soon became common among the Imperial Army as well. The Japanese name for these swords is Warabite To. There is a growing consensus that these swords are indeed a direct predecessor of the katana swords of samurai in later periods. The heavy iron-plated armor in use since the Kofun period proved far too difficult to maintain. Iron was scarce in Japan, and armor often rusted during long periods between uses. Leather became the preferred medium of protective gear, as it did not rust and its relative lightness made for more agile cavalry troops who could react more swiftly to the circumstances of battle. This adoption of hit-and-run Amishi tactics represented a drastic shift in the nature of Japanese warfare up until this point, and it resulted in a long-term change in tactics for the Yamato army. The commanders of previous years learned strategies and tactics from ancient Chinese sources which advised heavily armored troops in regular formations standing and fighting against an opposing force. Adopting Amishi tactics meant admitting that perhaps the dead Chinese generals were no longer relevant to the times. I think it's also safe to assume that some of the army's successes against the Amishi in the late 790s and beyond was due to Emperor Kamu's military reforms. Those who farmed in the Kanto had long since learned the tactics of their enemies, and had likely adopted some of their fighting style themselves. Now that thousands of petrified draftees from Chugoku and Kansai weren't traipsing through narrow ravines or thickly forested roads, the locals could take the lead and apply their knowledge and fighting experience unimpeded. The alliance with the Shiwa Emishi can be compared to one of the prevailing long-term strategies of the Roman Empire. Often the Romans would ally with a group inside the territory they wanted to conquer and then provide support to their ally when they came into conflict with their neighbors. Over time, they would build war-supporting infrastructure, which ensured that the target region eventually became part of the empire itself by default. Historian Dr. Carl F. Friday compares the Yamato conquest of the Amishi to England's medieval annexation of Wales. 
Rather than being the result of a few large set-piece battles that ended in crushing victories, the English instead sent advanced forces against weak areas and built castles to defend their gains. These fortresses became a means of controlling resource acquisition inside the Welsh frontier, and took place gradually over a hundred-year period. In the same way, the Yamato army under Seitai Shogun Sakanoue Tamuramaro consolidated their victories by gradually building a network of hilltop forts all over the Tohoku region, which they steadily fortified against Emishi assault. In 802, the shogun oversaw the construction of a fort deep inside Emishi territory in Mutsu province, which was named Isawajo. A short time after, possibly out of fear that their own personal subjugation was now imminent, the leaders of the mighty Isawa Emishi Confederation surrendered themselves along with 500 of their warriors to the mercies of the imperial court. Sakanoue Tamuramaro was overjoyed at this development. You might remember the Isawa Confederation from the Battle of Subuse, which we discussed in Season 4, Episode 15, Emperor Kamu's Big Moves. In 789, Kamu Tenno had sent Seito Shogun Ki Kosami to root out the Isawa Emishi and their troublesome leader, Aterui. This had resulted in a humiliating defeat for the Imperial Army, and it is possible that the bitterness of that setback was what now animated the court's response to the surrender of Aterui and his men. The usual response to Emishi's surrender in these circumstances was to relocate them and their families to western Japan, where they would be assimilated into Yamato culture. You may recall that we discussed similar measures being taken against independent tribes of Kyushu last season. I can only imagine Sakanoue Tamuramaro's shock when he brought the captured warriors back to Heian-kyo and received his official orders from the imperial court. Execute them all. The shogun obeyed and executed the Emishi captives in Kawachi province. The priests of the indigenous shrine at Katano, just south of Heian-kyo along the Yodo River, claimed that Atarui's remains reside at their shrine still today. According to them, Tamuramaro respected Atarui and brought his head there himself out of respect for a worthy rival. The court may have been hoping that the mass execution of the Isawa Emishi warriors would strike fear into the remaining Emishi who continued to resist their hegemony. As you might have already guessed, this did not work out the way the Kuge intended. In 803, the hilltop fort of Shiwajo was constructed far to the north of Isawajo. While a general hostility would linger among the Emishi of Tohoku, due in part to the harsh treatment of Aterui, the fighting that ensued was mostly small-scale, and the days of great victories like the one they had scored at Sabuse village were long behind them. In 805, the courtier Fujiwara Otsugu, then the Sadaijin, or Minister of the Left, proposed that Emperor Kamu suspend the war against the Emishi, as well as construction in Heian-kyo, both of which were rapidly draining the treasury without providing anything material in return. Kamu Tenno suspended further construction of the capital at this point, 
but continued funding military adventures in Tohoku, and Sakano-ue Tamuramaro continued building hilltop forts and isolating the Amishi of the northern regions from one another. In 811, the imperial court declared victory, and the provinces of Dewa and Mutsu, which together make up Tohoku, were put under the control of the Abe and Kiyohara clans, respectively. This was not the last time the Amishi would take up arms against Yamato soldiers, but most future rebellions would look very similar to regional risings rather than large-scale armed resistance movements. The construction of hilltop forts continued throughout the 800s and beyond, ensuring that Yamato armies could quickly entrench any time there was trouble in the future. As for Sakanoue Tamuramaro, the second Seitai Shogun is generally a more widely celebrated figure than Otomo Otomaro due to the massive successes he had in bringing the Amishi under Yamato hegemony. The story of his taking Atarui's head to be buried at a shrine perhaps testifies to the earliest seeds of Bushido, the warrior's code that would emerge in later times. We are not finished with Shogun Tamuramaro, who will feature prominently and heroically in an incident we'll discuss in a few episodes. Next time, we'll take a step back and examine the reign of Emperor Kamu, warts and all. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web ahistoryofjapan.com. Thank you.